welcome to today's discussion. Uh, my name is uh, Glenn Diesen. I'm a professor at the University of South Eastern Norway. Uh, with me is uh, Alexander Mercuris of the excellent Duran. And the guest today is uh, President uh, Václav Klaus, uh, who is the former president of Czech Republic. So uh, as an economist, uh, President Klaus served as the first non-communist finance minister after the Velvet Revolution. He then served as the prime minister from 1992 to 97. Uh, he then became the president of the Czech Republic for two terms from 2003 to 2013. And uh, again, this president is not like other presidents, as uh, President Klaus has published uh, over 30 books. So he uh, remains very active, intellectual, and uh, yeah, well-read uh, all over the whole world uh, by yeah, many fans. So it's uh, truly a great pleasure, uh, Mr. President. So uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. The introduction is killing me because... Uh, the expectations from the viewers would be would be very high. how can I tell them? Yeah, well, I I actually first came in contact with you in back in 2019 because you you cited me uh, in a speech you gave in Shanghai about yeah, me and my and my theory on the, the balance of dependence. So it's also extremely flattering. It must be the yeah, first time I've ever been referenced by name by a president in a speech. So again, <laughs> very flattering. So. But but the topic today will primarily be the the political and economic development of Europe after the Cold War, as again you've been, played an important part in this history. So uh, we also therefore wanted to discuss some of the challenges uh, as well as opportunity facing the EU, but also Europe. So I thought we can start with uh, European integration because European integration is often treated as a fixed concept. So if you're pro-European, you know you support you know, uh, elected national parliaments transferring some sovereignty to Brussels. This is uh, the way the, the language is often used. But uh, as we see for uh, Central and Eastern European countries, uh, this often can be seen as problematic because after being ruled from Moscow for many decades during the communist era, uh, yeah, the Czech Republic gained its full sovereignty. And so European uh, integration becomes a dilemma because on one hand you have, you know, the freedom and desire to engage as much as possible with the rest of Europe. On the other hand, I guess transferring sovereignty to another borderless superstate becomes a big, big bit of a challenge. So I, th I was ho hoping you could say a bit, we'll talk a bit about the advantages uh, as well as the disadvantages of what the European has offered uh, the Czech Republic. Okay, okay. So I'm surprised. I expected to discuss the current contemporary, contemporary issues, debates, and you started uh, with mentioning the developments after the Cold War. You know, this is we really want to discuss the thirty years or, or just the recent era. Well, the, yeah, the recent will be good. <laughs> okay. Okay. You know, you are you are right saying that we we were lost in the communist paradise and in the communist um, institutions of, of um, liquidating any any freedom and any independence, any sovereignty of a country. Then we made the so-called Velvet Revolution and we suddenly had a feeling that we are finally, finally free. But this era was, in our way of looking at it, 
relatively short. You know, the 1990s was for us the, the relatively free era, but then with entering the the EU in the middle of the first decade of this century, yeah, again we again feel that the, the, the decisions are made not in Prague, not by ourselves, but in a remote capital this time in Brussels. So so this is our general feeling. I, I if I am not wrong, you mentioned that the EU is a fixed concept. Am I right? I- I wouldn't say that, you know, for me, the EU is a movable target and movable concert. The EU started uh, with a totally different and different concept after the Second World War. And now it has been moving from, I call it, integration to unification. And this is something which I reject absolutely. Well... Can can I say that, of course, in Britain, it was the rejection of that process of unification which took place in Britain that led us to pursue Brexit. We have, however, discovered in Britain how actually very difficult it is to break away completely from uh, uh, the EU and its institutions. We still remain deeply integrated um, in it. And, of course, in Britain, and I should say, you know, I'm British, but I also have Greek ancestry. I think there is a great frustration amongst many people that Europe, which is a cultural and civilizational concept, is now becoming conflated with a particular institution, which is a very, very modern institution indeed. Well, you are absolutely right. And... um... I think it's necessary for, it's an obligation for all all of us to strictly, strictly differentiate Europe and uh, the European Union. I I think for many, many Europeans, it's identical, which is absolutely wrong. I remember when I, in the first days after, after the entry of the Czech Republic into the EU, which was on the 1st of May 2004, I, I traveled all over Europe and I was really shocked by being welcomed by, by politicians, by people with, with the phrase, welcome in Europe. And I opposed it dramatically and I answered that I have all the time, even in the darkest communist days, I was part of Europe. I was just not part of the European Union. That difference is fundamental. To say that in Brussels is almost impossible. They would hate me by the way they hate me all the time. <laughs> Necessary to add anything new. So the difference between Europe and European Union is for me absolutely fundamental. And it's the beginning for any serious discussion about these issues. It's also, and I'm going to be a bit, perhaps, you know, go a bit far here, but I think it is also partly what is responsible for the present crisis in Europe, the present political crisis that we see in Europe, in the sense that, the Cold War was partly because, was well, was mainly because one particular power in Europe, the Soviet Union, was able to exercise enormous dominance 
over part of a, a whole area of Europe. And that created a huge amount of tension within Europe, um, which had been looking for peace after the Second World War. Now what we see, and I don't want to, I'm not making comparisons, I'm not making direct comparisons between the European Union and the Soviet Union, they're very different entities. But nonetheless, we see an institutional system being created in Europe, which in my opinion, is at least in part responsible for the tensions in the system that we see being created. Because countries like the Czech Republic, Slovakia, all kinds of countries are being forced continuously to take positions which they might not wish to. And we have an enterprise also, which is, to be frank, rather aggressive in the way in which it extends itself. Mm -hmm. You are right, absolutely. I also disagree with cheap and too easy comparisons of Soviet Union, Comecon, and all that with European Union. That that's for me uh, not uh, not a serious comparison, and, and it's easy and cheap journalism. On the other hand, we have this feeling that what we are going through. It reminds us more and more the our experience in the in the past. I don't compare the early uh, very cruel communism with with the European Union now, but I think we can easily compare the European Union today with what I call the late communism. So so the situation in our country in the late 80s, we were very angry about it. Nevertheless, it seems to me quite comparable with the situation now. The freedom, not just of, of the country, but freedom of individuals is almost comparable with that. Yeah, and that that's the feeling of many, many Czechs and not only Czechs, other Central Europeans. I feel often there's a, maybe a lack of understanding, not just for Czech Republic, but also Hungary, Poland, many countries in Central and Eastern Europe, because many have embraced more uh, conservative values. Of course, after exiting communism, it would be a natural desire to revive some you know, distinctive traditions, culture, customs, faith, uh, you know, elevating the role of the family in nations. So I think uh, uh, it doesn't seem to coincide very well, though, with the EU's more... Uh, universal and global agenda or objectives. I was wondering, um, did you see any ideological conflicts within the EU uh, in terms of uh, globalism versus uh, traditionalism or nationalism? Well, I, first, I, I think it's very difficult to speak about nationalism, at least in our part uh, nationalism has a bad name. You know, it's uh, connected with a negativistic and uh, and crazy ideology of the of the Nazism in 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 Germany in Hitler's era. So for us, uh, we are very sensitive to the term nationalism. I can imagine that the term nationalism can be can be discussed abstractly, scientifically, 
as an as an innocent statement without any value judgment. Nevertheless, this is not possible in the in the real world. So I have problems with calling it nationalism. To be an advocate of the nation state and to be against all kinds of supranational entities, all kinds of empires and unions, unions of all kinds, is something else than the debate about nationalism. Please, I, I, I don't like to, 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 to discuss it in using this terminology. No, fair enough. But uh, yeah, because um, I keep always thinking about uh, a very interesting or, or great speech you were giving in the EU Parliament. Again, this is a while ago. It's in 2009. This is, you were saying that, you know, for the Czech Republic, there's no alternatives to Europe, but you requested or asked for some debate about what Europe means and what European integration should entail. Uh, to paraphrase, you, you know, discussed no one should monopolize on the concept of Europe and, uh, you know, no one should own the keys of this. So. Uh, and, and which is a, I would argue, was a good argument given the democratic and intellectual pluralist traditions, or at least what we should embrace in Europe. But well, what I found most memorable was, uh, or one of the more memorable things, would be that so many MAPs stood up and actually left in protest. And the reason was they considered this to be anti-European, uh, which is yeah, why I, I refer to the fixed understanding of Europe. I was just wondering. Uh, what do you make of that? And also, how 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 would you ideally have seen your, you see Europe be organized? Uh, uh, not just now, but in years to come. You know, I have been making many many speeches of that kind, uh, but this one was in the one was the famous speech in the European European Parliament. I, I don't think that I, I at that time said something unique, new unexpected, and so on. But what was absolutely crazy was the reaction of some of the European parliamentarians. They simply were not able to stand that someone is directly speaking to them and says that the whole concept of the European unification is wrong. Stop. That was my main message. And I, I try to explain that we... Even in the darkest communist days, where we're looking at the European, at that time, EEC, European Economic Community, as something very positive, simply, we have nothing against the best possible cooperation in Europe, but we are very much, I, we have nothing against opening of Europe, making possible free free flow of, of not just goods and services, but, but just people and capital as well. So that was our general concept. But what we were forced to swallow was not such an European integration, but the European integration changed, especially in Maastricht 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago. And then changed even more by the Lisbon Treaty. So I was the main opponent of the of the switch, radical switch to European unification, which was done in by means of the Lisbon Treaty. So that that's my my being involved in the debate. And I tried not as president of the country not to sign the Lisbon Treaty, but I was extremely pressed 
from abroad, one delegation after another from Brussels and some some EU member states were coming to Prague. I, I was pressed by by the opposition in in my country. I was praised by the very very powerful leftist intellectuals in 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 my country. I was pressed by the crazy institution, which is the Constitutional Court, and so on. So I finally, as the last one, uh, signed the treaty, making some exceptions for for the Czech Republic. But but um, I know that I was not able to to stop process of European unification, um, the possibility would have been to to step down as as as, uh, as president of the country, but it would be the next day signed by the new president. So that was for me in my in my eyes not the rational solution how to do this. Because it is this inability to conduct debates about the future, about the choices that we have, that I think is also, to a great extent, part of the same problems. Just before we started this programme, Professor Deason sent to me, I think it is an article that you wrote, about some of the problems that we have in the present crisis, about the fact that, yes, we can all agree the Russians were the aggressors. What they did in Ukraine is wrong. But let's not talk about this as if this came out of nowhere. And you discuss the reaction in Europe, the attempt that many people in Europe make to close down any discussion of these issues. And it's exactly the same, it seems to me, with what you've just been explaining about the Lisbon Treaty. People don't want to debate things anymore. And that is such a complete betrayal for me personally of what Europe is supposed to be about nowadays. Yeah, you are absolutely right. We, the, there are many losses due to the Ukraine war, but one of them is freedom in Europe. Freedom to debate fundamental issues, not just, just of the European integration process, but uh, the freedom to discuss other fundamental ideological debates about green philosophy, about progressivism, cancel culture, multiculturalism, and so on. So we are the victims of the Ukraine war, really, not just the poor people in the Ukraine and, and of course, and in Russia as well. So we are the victims of the, of the war and the debate about fundamental issues of the current world and of the current European continent were practically cancelled, liquidated, stopped because of the war. Because now who is criticizing the EU is more or less an agent of Putin. This is the simplified way of looking looking at things. So, so that's my position. You started discussing Brexit, you know, well, I think uh, the the British people think that it's very difficult to leave the the European Union. But no, that uh, I don't agree with your nodding to that. It's very easy to leave it, but it needs it needs a decisiveness on the side of the of the country which tries to 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 do a Brexit. But but the crazy 
politicizing of issues and in in Great Britain uh, the changes of prime ministers and the lack of cohesion of the Conservative Party position that created the troubles. Otherwise, it could be done simply. And uh, I, you know, I am an expert on on uh, on. Uh, Uh, dividing countries or leaving some entities because I was the one who who more or less organized the separation, the split of Czechoslovakia and the division of Czechoslovakia into two parts. And I, I know that it's basically the decision. This is the issue of making a decision and be con- and to be consistent in 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 fulfilling it so britain was for me the good case of how to leave the european european union and i'm afraid that it will be always used as an example how impossible leaving the eu is so i'm very sorry for the british they they betrayed us by their behavior in this in this respect Uh, Mr. President, you're completely correct in the sense that, of course, there was a majority amongst the British public to leave the European Union. The problem is that there was an overwhelming majority within the British political class to remain inside. And they've never really accepted that. They've never really reconciled themselves to that decision. And what you just said, um, I found that very important about the fact that it is a case of decision. There was, I think, a French statesman once said that to govern is to choose. And we are very afraid today of choices, or so it seems to me. We have to follow always, I I don't want to use this word, but I'm going to the party line almost, it feels sometimes like, coming from the institutions in Brussels. It's very, very difficult for people when they don't. And you get all caught all kinds of things if you try and go against this. And that is very intimidating for people as well. Yeah, it is very difficult. No, no doubt about it. But um, it's either or. You know, you have to be the, the object of the... Of the uh, EU decisions done in Brussels, or you will be a subject of of your own decision-making. I think, uh, you know, Great Britain made a tragic mistake by entering the EU (laughs) in 74. That was, at that time, existed still um, uh, EFTA, you know, and that would be a much better better form of European so we would be much happier to join EFTA than to join the EU. And but we, after the fall of communism at that time, we didn't have such a such a, a chance anymore. So and it was done by everything done by Great Britain. Tragic. I'm sorry to say that, Mr. President. Um, can I- Uh, Sometimes the British scholar in the 1960s, David Mitrani, because he was making this argument that European integration can take two forms. It can be functionalist or federalist. The functionalists would say we should integrate in areas where it can enhance our uh, economy, our our democracy, our security. But then you had the federalist approach, which said uh, essentially creating a super state was a goal in its own. So 
but but this would then lead to coercion, less freedom, and yeah, sometimes it feels he uh, was kind of spot on because uh, uh, the economic efficiency and the, the democratic quality, all of this uh, seems to have been been declining with this integration. Uh, but uh, again, this will be one one challenge though of this uh, of uh, how Europe was, has been organized after the Cold War. Uh, so while many countries now are yeah, not, not, yeah com- well, not, not happy with uh, uh, yeah transferring sovereignty to Brussels. Uh, uh, for other countries outside the EU and, and NATO, uh, or primarily Russia, the, a key, I guess, uh, concern about the way Europe was organized was you we effectively put put someone inside and others outside, and the concern was you know if you have a Europe without Russia, it would unavoidably become a Europe against Russia. I was wondering, uh, how, how do you see this? Uh, and uh, uh, again, perhaps this you know, common European home was always a bit uh, utopian in, in its ideals. I was, but how, how do you see Europe, Russia being managed after the Cold War and how, how it could have perhaps have been done differently? You know, that's, that's another issue. I, I would return... To, to 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 talking about the EU itself, you know, we it, we have, in this interview we have a very special triangle. Though there are three people, one is from Britain, which left the the EU. The another one is from Norway, uh, which has never entered the EU, even though uh, Norway is ideologically more. European than than most of the European countries. Uh, for me, Norway is too much on the left and has always been. And and just and the third person is the Czech politician who was always against the European integration. So so we are not the right people to discuss uh, the decision making in in Europe. And uh, let's let's make it quite explicit. This is this is the reality and the situation. So you should invite some exponents of the European integration to this to this debate to 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 motivate us to be dramatic and aggressive against them. But you mentioned the, the as you call it as you put it utopian project as the uh, European House or House of Europe. I don't know what. You know, we we in the in the communist Czechoslovakia we laughed at such utopian schemes, and we knew that it's um, absolutely impossible, irrelevant, and um, and um, real utopian, as you put it. So I I am not very optimistic about the possibility to do it differently after the after the fall of communism. There was no. At the beginning, there was no real partner on the other side. Soviet Union disappeared and Russia was in big troubles how to consolidate itself. And so at that moment, the United States used the position of, of a unipolar hegemon in the world. I don't, I don't see a, a better version. And especially to, to discuss the exposed history seems to me not very interesting. We live in a different world. The issue is what to do in the future, how to potentially, eventually make a better situation in Europe. But um, 
let's say that there could have been some some scenarios to how to do it, but the Ukraine war killed the, the all possibilities for a for me at least foreseeable future. For means in my lifetime, you know, maybe for my children and grandchildren, it could be an interesting but not for us today. For you, a young man, you you may dream about changing Europe, but that's not my ambition. My ambition is to somehow rationalize the world we live in. Mm. I mean, if somebody who was, you know, elected to high political office in Europe were to seek your advice, right? perhaps that happens, I don't know, but let's say they did. What would you advise them to do in this situation? They came along to you, they said, I've just been elected prime minister of my country. I find myself in this situation. I'm constantly having to, I'm getting this stream of instructions all the time, because they do from Brussels, from whomever, um, I come under constant pressure. I don't want to agree. How does one push back? How does, does one build a coalition? Does one speak to people? Does one talk about this? Or does one try to go with the flow? Does one accept that the pressure is overwhelming and that there are huge risks in going against it? Or, or does one nonetheless push back? I mean, which which do you see would be as the better course? Because what you just said now, I mean, I have to say, was a very bleak vision that, you know, we are in effectively in this tunnel and we have to keep following it now because realistically there isn't any alternative. Or at least maybe I, I got your, the sense of it wrong. There is no idea, no advice to anyone who enters politics to change the EU these days. There is no such chance. What we have to do, we have to change politics in individual EU member states. That's the only, only possibility. We have to return to standard politics. We have to return to the system of parliamentary. We have to return to the system of ideologically well-defined political parties. Mm -hmm. And we don't have political parties. I I would again say ideologically well-defined political parties. We don't have a chance to change anything. Look, uh, Hungary is is in a different situation. Hungary has a clear political leader, not because he's a genius and he has very clever, uniquely clever ideas. No, he has a political party behind behind himself. And uh, this party has a clear constituency and it gives him a chance to do something. In Europe, political parties more or less disappeared and the the political parties are really just institutions which look like political parties, but they are really not political in the standard way of defining them. So I think ideas are not sufficient. We have to build institutions, to build institutions there are thousands, maybe millions of people who have 
very similar views to the three of, to the three of us. But um, how to aggregate them? How to put them together? And I'm sorry to say, uh, someone from the ex-communist country shouldn't teach Europeans, but but um, I think uh, we need to aggregate the, the people by political parties. There is no other institutions. The so-called civic society and the NGOs and all of that cannot aggregate them and to make them a, an, an entity which uh, can somehow behave and have ideas, have uh, interests, preferences, and so on. So no advice, no advice to how to better, better discuss in Brussels. That, that's, uh, that's, uh, there is no advice in this respect. We have to, to restart politics at the, at the individual member states level. That's, that's my only advice I would, I would make. Which is which is very very important advice indeed, actually. <laughs> no, no, no. This is it comes from someone who spent most of his life. I was forty nine when when um, communism disappeared. So so our main idea, and I am I am more more known by by being the architect of the economic uh, reform of the economic transformation. Nevertheless. I consider my important achievements not just to create uh, the economic transition, to make economic transition. I consider the, the fact that I radically uh, disagreed with President Havel, who hated political parties and tried to create a civic society based on NGOs and um, and institutions of that kind. And I succeeded in reintroducing political parties after half a century of communism. And uh, therefore, uh, the relatively successful 1990s were the result of having a standard political structure. Despite fight political parties, which have a normal, well-defined name from communist to socialist to some Christian Democrats in the middle and to my 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 own political party on the right. So so that's important. If we don't introduce it in Norway, Spain, Germany, there is no future, no chance for future. In Britain as well, by the way. I mean, it's what you describe about the dec decay of political parties applies as much to Britain as it does to any EU state. I mean, if you look at the state of our political parties in Britain, <laughs> it is exactly as you've described it, parties that, res that carry the name of the parties of the past yeah. Yeah. and have inherited some of their... Um, you know, cultural legacies, but which have no real resemblance to those parties. I mean, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party of today are profoundly different from the political parties that I once remember in the 1960s and 1970s, for example. Not so long ago, in fact. And yes, I, I can understand. I mean, it's a huge task, but, um, you know, a task of generations to rebuild politics in the West, but again, 
perhaps, Mr. President, you know, having achieved it in the Czech Republic, it shows that it can be done. And perhaps I, w- I would say that is actually extremely powerful advice which you have just given. You are, you are, uh, you are right, and uh, we should all agree on your statement. Uh, that it can be done. This is how you how you formulated it. It can be done, definitely. But we have to to define the preconditions for this possibility. The first precondition is a total total disagreement with the past system. You know, when when I I I have doubts about the, the possibility to change the current world and the European Union, uh, everyone here tells me, "Don't be so pessimistic." Uh, communism also disappeared relatively relatively quickly, rapidly, and I said, "Okay," but but it was in a moment when communism was totally discredited. There was no one who would have defended it, you know. So it was just a form empty, empty box. Uh, and it was easy to, to change it and to destroy it and to, to liquidate it. Uh, and uh, everyone says, well, you see, that's the reason that we can change the current arrangements in, in the world and in Europe. I say okay, but uh, do, do, what, how, how, where, when do you think we are now these days? You know, uh, communism started with the communist putsch in my country in 1948, and existed till 89. So let's say 41 years. So I asked always them, do you think are we already uh, so unhappy with the? With Uh, with the new era as we were with communism in 1987? Definitely not. You know, uh, in our country, communism was totally discredited already in 1968 by the by the Soviet Union invasion into Czechoslovakia. So I am asking them, we are not in 87, not in 75. I'm afraid we are in Europe these days in 1961 in using our our time scale, maybe if not 1551, you know, there is disagreement with, with many measures done in our countries, but there is not disagreement with the system and without that there can't be a real change. Well, Mr. President, I, 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 I think I'm exhausted in terms of the questions I wanted to place. I don't know whether Professor Deason has more to ask, but um, I would, before finishing, just say thank you again for this, ex- uh, for this discussion. Thank you for inviting me to this debate. Yeah, uh, you know, I had wanted to ask some more about the ideological rivalry, but I think we yeah, we ran out of time. So yeah, I just want to thank you as well, uh, Mr. President. It was a great pleasure to yeah be able to speak with you. Thank you, thank you very much as well.